0: Hello and welcome to Inside Exercise. I'm Emeritus Professor Glenn McConnell. Today I'm bringing to you Professor Guégoire Mier from the University of Lausanne in Switzerland. He has a very interesting background, been a former elite triathlete and a coach of elite triathletes, but he's also had a remarkable scientific career with around 400 peer reviewed scientific journal articles. So his focus has been on altitude and hypoxic training and hypoxic conditioning. Most of us are aware of, you know, athletes living at altitude and training at altitude. So that's live high, train high. But for over 20 years, there's been an interest in live high, train low, which is where you either live at altitude or breathe low oxygen air. And then you exercise at sea level. So just with normal air. But um, that's actually progressed now. So for the last 10 years or so, uh, Professor Mie and others have been looking at this concept of live high, train low, and high, so that way you actually, for example, either live high or breathe low oxygen air, and then you train with normal oxygen, but also you supplement that, for example, with repeated sprints by breathing hypoxic air, so that's live high, train low, and high, and that's particularly of interest for um, intermittent sports, team type sports. We also talked about um, his interest in using hypoxia, and also hyperoxia, which is high oxygen, um, in, in treatments for people with hypertension and peripheral arterial disease, et cetera. So hypoxia, hyperoxia for health. I think you'll really enjoy this one, so stick around. Hello, Gregoire, welcome to Inside Exercise. Thank you for coming on at short notice.
1: Yeah, thank you, Glenn, for the invitation. It's a pleasure to chat with you on altitude training and hypoxic conditioning.
0: Yes, and I have to admit, I, I had to ask you how to say your name properly. So why don't you say your, your full name properly? A...
1: Uh, I'm Grégoire Millet. So the, that, you can call me Gregory Millet, but my real name is Grégoire Millet. So I'm a professor of exercise and environmental physiology at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland. I'm a French citizen. I grew, up in, I, I grew up at moderate altitude, and I uh-huh. guess that's where my interest for altitude uh, came from.
0: Okay. Well, I saw you were a French uh, triathlete champion, triathlon champion at one stage. So I thought, okay, Switzerland. So you, I guess you were born. Why don't you tell us your background and how you were a triathlete and coach and and now, you know, exercise yeah. scientist, obviously.
1: So, yeah, I, I grew up on the Jura-Montagne, mountain is uh, on the Swiss border at uh, 1,000 meters of altitude. Then I started with cross-country ski. And then later on, I moved to triathlon, where I was a professional uh, triathlete for a few years. And then after that, I moved to uh, coaching, Uh, first with a French team. I was, after that, I was a performance director of the British team at Sydney Olympics. Mm -hmm. And then I was advisor and coach for the Hong Kong team. Um, Between 2004 and 2008, I was a senior uh, physiologist at Aspire in Qatar where I did develop the hypoxic facility there and the physiology labs. And then since uh, 2008, I'm a professor in uh, Lausanne. But I'm still working on the same topic, something I was really interested as an athlete, coach, and now, uh, let's say, academic. Uh, That is uh, how we can use uh, altitude hypoxia uh, for some uh, benefit in athletes and now in patients. Exactly. That's something. um, Yeah, I I have. I have probably a very narrow uh, mind because I'm focusing all the last forty years on the same on the same thing. But obviously, as an athlete and coach, it was more about the outcome, practical outcome. And now I'm more interested about the potential mechanisms and also uh, improving the what is already existing. And that's why uh, I think we'll we'll speak a bit later about it. uh, about some uh, innovation coming from my lab on yes, attitude yes. training.
0: so yeah I, I mean you sent me a couple of papers I only had a quick look at uh, them but you know the health implications etc so a lot more to it than, than what we tend to think about and what what I thought about at first was you know altitude training endurance athletes but you you've also and others have been looking at for team sports but how about can you just set the scene and also i want to apologize i said on twitter you had 225 papers it was on the web somewhere you got 400 papers um peer-reviewed journal articles that's amazing um can you just set the scene a little bit here on um you know what actually happens when you go to altitude and even even before that like you know the mexico olympics you know why that was interesting and how that may have you know spurned a lot of research etc
1: yeah, from an historical point of view, obviously, uh, investigation about altitude training starts in the 60s because of the Mexico Olympic Games in 68. But at that time, the only way to use altitude was, uh, was a living high, training high. That means I go to St. Moritz in Switzerland, uh, I, or you go to uh, Colorado Springs, and then you spend three, four weeks living and training there. Uh, And obviously, the main advantage of uh, being 24 hours a day at altitude is that you have a long exposure to uh, altitude. And uh, it's a very important uh, parameter, how long you stay there. The second parameter is how high you Mm -hmm. have to be. And the third one that is less frequently uh, uh, taken into account is the intermittence. Is it the same to spend, let's say, three weeks, Uh, continuously or is it the same to spend three weeks where I will uh, spend the three weeks with few days interspersed so Mm -hmm. intermittence is quite important because when you have some adaptation we'll speak about that later when you go to altitude but you have also some adaptation when you go back to sea level and uh, obviously it's not exactly the same three weeks continuously or three weeks interspersed
0: yes yes so we'll talk about a whole bunch of that stuff and as you said it started off people with mainly thinking about um you know competing high and then it became train high live low and i know you have an interest in live low train high etc so yes. there's all sorts of combinations
1: but yeah, before you we get three sorry you have three big families and it's still the case so the the first one was living high training high the second hmm. one that was that was developed in the 90s by professor ben levine and Jim Staginsen, who was a, a medical doctor at the USA Ski, uh, it was living high, training low. The first paper was in the '90s, and this live high, train low method has been worldwide uh, um, spread. You know, every now every um, let's say sports center has some sleeping room, mm-hmm. including at the Australian Institute of Sport, where they had a hypoxic chamber where you can sleep in altitude but train low and then uh you have the leave low train high and in the leave low train high you have a lot of different possibilities you can leave low and train high in an hypoxic chamber or using a mask system at low intensity that's what we call continuous training in hypoxia cth you can do interval training in hypoxia what we call iht And you can do repeated sprint in hypoxia, what we called R-S-H, repeated sprint training in hypoxia. And now you have resistance training in hypoxia. And for these different methods, it's always of interest to um, discuss, is it systemic hypoxia? You go to the mountain or you go in an hypoxic chamber, so you are in a hypoxic environment, or is it localized hypoxia? You can induce localized hypoxia for example with blood flow restriction with a cuff system so you you, in the toolbox there are many many tools and obviously the expertise now for any elite coaches or any physiologist is not to discuss is one method better than the other one is how you complement and uh, how you combine these different methods for example if i go I sleep high, I train low, and but from time to time I train high, then we can call this method live high, train low, and high. No. You can okay. sleep high. That will be mainly for erythropoietic response increase in hemoglobin mass. You can train low. That would mean you get a better training quality. But from time to time, you can also do re- a repeated sprint or resistance training in hypoxia for inducing some additional benefits, but mainly at the peripheral level, you know? So it's quite interesting because it's much more complicated than just what what it was for at the beginning in the 60s, I go to altitude only for improving my oxygen transport capacity. That is still very important, right? But it's not the only way to use altitude and hypoxia.
0: Okay. All right. There's quite a lot there to unpack um just for people that may not be that familiar with the area can we just talk a little bit about just you know even when you just go up to altitude you know people always always say you know even undergrad students they'll say oh there's less oxygen up there you know they think it's less as a as a percentage but it's actually the same percentage but you want to just explain what happens when you go up some some basics and then we start to unpack each of these things so maybe what happens acutely when you go up you know how sure. you feel what happens to your heart rate your ventilation and things like that and then we start saying well why would you want to do this sort of training or whatever we'll get to that a bit later is that okay
1: yeah so the first point and thanks for the question is that uh, obviously we can have hypobaric hypoxia that's a real altitude so even at the top of mount everest you still have 20.93% of oxygen what mm-hmm. makes the exercise so difficult in altitude is that the barometric pressure decreased At the top of Mount Everest, it's about one third of the barometric pressure at the at sea level, like uh, where you are now in the, in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the oxygen pressure, the ambient oxygen pressure, is decreased to the same extent. But when you go to most of the hypoxic chamber in the world, we don't manipulate the barometric pressure. Some hypobaric chamber can do that, but from a technological point of mm-hmm. view, you need to get this uh, iron you know, metallic wall because you, mm-hmm. the, the device has to support the, the difference in pressure between mm-hmm. in and out, out of the room. But most of the hypoxic chambers used now in sports uh, worldwide is what we call normobaric hypoxia. NH, that means you just decrease the oxygen fraction, the oxygen percent. We know that if you are at sea level and you use 13.5% of oxygen instead of 21, you will be around 3,000, 3,500 meters of simulated altitude. We don't talk about altitude because altitude is a physical parameter, Mm -hmm. you know? Yes. uh, Altitude is, is related to sea level. So we're talking in meta or mm-hmm. or feet in the U.S. <laughs> compared to sea level,
0: yes. while
1: hypoxia is a physiological parameter.
0: Yes. So so if you go up to the top of, our, uh, you know, Mount Everest or or as you said Colorado Springs or whatever, you've got the same percent of oxygen, but because there's less pressure, it, each molecule is sort of further apart. So so when you breathe in each liter, you're getting less oxygen. So that's that's normoxic. So normal oxygen, um, hypobarrier
1: hypobaric
0: normoxia
1: no it's a uh, it's a uh, it's uh, hypox it's normobaric hypoxia,
0: hypoxia. So we not...
1: don't change the exactly. barometric pressure we change the, we Oxygen. change the hypoxic level and uh what is um of interest is that again for long it was thought that hypobaric hypoxia and normobaric hypoxia would lead to the same adaptation or to the same physiological responses and We've been working, uh, the last ten years, uh, about uh, subtile differences mm. between normobaric and okay. hypobaric hypoxia. That would clearly show that clearly shows now that there is an, a small additional effect of decreased hypobaric uh, decreased barometric pressure on mm. top of the hypoxic okay uh, okay stress so or saying... stimulus you yes. still have an additional hypobaric stimulus. Okay. That means the, it's not exactly the same.
0: Okay, so you're saying, so like, like as you said, many labs and, you know, we'll talk about altitude tents, hypoxic tents, you know, you've got the normal pressure, obviously, because you're at sea level, but yeah. then you drop the oxygen content and you're saying you actually get differences. So that, that's really interesting. Um, so, so that's why, for example, sorry,
1: that's why for if you want to have the same, uh, responses in a, in a normal baric hypoxic facilities in a tent, you have to set the oxygen fraction as lower. it would be a bit higher. In ah, yes, altitude. a bit lower
0: oxygen, a bit higher altitude. Yes, yes. yes so yes.
1: Uh, no, a bit lower fraction to simulate yes. a, a bit
0: higher, higher altitude. I get you.
1: Know? you. We, we calculate, we approximate like it would be two to, two to 300 meter difference.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. That's quite a lot. Yeah. So, so then, just just again, just to get people on the same page. So so when you go up to altitude, or if you're breathing low oxygen at, at sea level, you're getting less oxygen per breath, so you have to breathe more. Um, you have to have a higher heart rate to deliver the same amount of oxygen to your muscles, and various other adaptations. Now, what you know, what people usually think about, and and uh, and you, you can obviously say there's other adaptations as well, is the fact that that stimulus. Will then make the body want to think, okay, how am I going to increase my oxygen delivery? Sure. And one way it does that is to red, increase the red blood cell mass. Did you want to just explain yeah. how long that takes? And um, obviously, how long it takes depends on how much you want it to increase. But whether sure. in, everyone increases, whether, it, whether there's non responders or not, there was talk yeah. of that at one stage. Uh, and stuff like that for a bit and then yeah. We'll, yeah. maybe
1: we can uh, simply describe the acute response to hypoxia after mm-hmm. first and then to discuss responder versus non-responder <laughs> and <laughs> the chronic adaptation so mm-hmm. the acute response to hypoxia just uh if you have a, a decrease in the oxygen pressure obviously that will induce a decrease in the alveolar pressure and then consequently it will modify the the different gradient of pressure at the different stage you know of of the oxygen cascade so the first response is an hyperventilation Mm -hmm. if you go to altitude after very few minutes you will have a very large increase in your minute ventilation and uh breathing uh rate yes it will lead to an increase in the alveolar pressure you know and the alveolar pressure then would the gradient between the alveolar and the, capillary, the pulmonary capillary is very important for the diffusion. That's one of the first stages of the oxygen cascade. Mm-hmm. So the uh, pressure gradient has to be maintained. That's why you have this hyperventilation. But this hyperventilation has a lot of consequences. It will induce uh, respiratory alkalosis because I will exhale a lot of CO2. It will, this respiratory alkalosis will modify the acid-base balance in my blood and it will lead to, uh, let's say, uh, renal uh, bicarbonate excretion. And uh, if everything is okay, you should observe this increased minute ventilation, this hyperventilation, and at the end, of a few days, you should observe in people who have a good chemo sensitivity you should observe also an increase in the urine loss in the you know in the um, in your in the eurasis
0: yes okay so so you and
1: and then sorry and then oh, i just want to keep uh, it a bit simpler
0: have... for people sorry sorry just the yeah? people people that haven't done physiology even that so when you're talking about the 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 pressure so basically you've got less oxygen in your lungs so the alveoli, which is the smallest um unit in the lung
1: less pressure less pressure
0: yes yes okay uh, i'm just trying to make it simple for people so because yep. there's less pressure in the in the of, of oxygen specifically in the lung and you've got to have that gradient etc um you have to breathe more to try and put the oxygen concentration slash pressure up to then try and make you know increase your oxygen transport into the blood and you will also increase your heart rate yes yes and then another thing you said just then was you'll lose fluid so one of the things that happened is you actually lose plasma volume so people may not know but if you have blood and you spin it down the yellow on top is the plasma and then the red cells at the bottom you lose some plasma volume as well so what what effect does that have so then when you measure you might think oh the red blood cells have increased already but it's, it's really not the case it's just that you've lost some plasma volume is that
1: true yeah you know, the the, the the decrease in plasma volume will uh, occur a bit later not uh, it's not uh, so acute you know no. it will okay. take it will take few days to get a uh, very significant uh, decrease in plasma volume mm-hmm. uh, the, the first thing you will observe is simply a dehydration okay. the, during the first days at altitude because of the increased ventilation. So you will have the increased water Mm -hmm. loss by the respiration and Mm -hmm. you will have this diuretic response to to, to, uh, excrete bicarbonate, bicarbonate. And then the risk of dehydration is very important. Then later on, as you did explain, you'll have this AMO concentration decrease in plasma volume One thing that is important, since the the oxygen cascade is a bit um, more difficult, you know, the oxygen transport and so on, you have also some cardiovascular responses. And one of them is to try to maintain the cardiac output and maintain the VO2 is increase in the heart rate. Yes, You will have an increase in cardiac output, mainly by the increase in the heart rate. And this increase in the heart rate will stay very, very long. Even when you are acclimatized, your heart rate for a given exercise intensity will be a bit higher than what you would get at sea level.
0: Okay. So so when you go up there acutely, so just say you've been up for a few days and then you do like a VO2 max test or something. Um, did you want to just tell us what happens there that it's 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 going to be lower uh, do you want to just explain why it's lower with trying to keep it kind of simple that's okay
1: yes so <laughs> yeah. if you go to altitude and you are not pre-acclimatized you just go there uh, on average you will get about seven percent decrease in vo2 max per every 1000 meter of elevation okay. so if i go let's say to 3000 meter on average, because we can discuss later on, there's a large inter-individual variability, but mm-hmm. on average, it will be about, let's say 3 times, 3,000, 3 times 7%, 20%, 25% decrease in your mm-hmm. VO2 max. And it comes mainly from the convection. It comes mainly from the decrease in the oxygen transport. So if I come back to my oxygen cascade, I will have the oxygen that will go from the alveola and bind on the hemoglobin that will make oxyhemoglobin. This oxyhemoglobin will be the main way to transport oxygen down to the perith- down to the muscles. And this oxyhemoglobin, uh, there they will be uh, more difficult to have this oxygen transport uh, down because you'll have less oxygen coming from the lung. And we measure the oxygen pressure at the arterial level, that's what we call PaO2. Mm-hmm. So, just, so- just, to give you, just to give you a few numbers, at sea level, the ambient oxygen pressure is 150 millimeter of mercury. At the arterial level, it's about 195, 100 millimeter of mercury. But the more severe, is the, or the, more high, the, the highest is the altitude, the lower will be the alveolar, and then arterial pressure of oxygen. So less oxygen will be uh, also down to the capillary in the muscle and then less oxygen available for the mitochondria. So th- that's, it's affecting the whole cascade. Yes.
0: So if you're doing submaximal exercise in this in this situation, you'd probably be okay. You just have to have a higher heart rate, higher breathing rate to actually get that work done but you know and that's okay submaximate, but when you go up to max as you've indicated the, the main uh, limit to vo2 max generally is your oxygen delivery so you go up to your max heart rate and you can't actually do much about it right because you're at your max heart rate and you just don't have about yeah. blood uh, but, oxygen in the blood so your when you're when low. you are
1: when you are in altitude your maximal heart rate is decreased your maximal mm. cardiac output is decreased and mm. obviously your vo2 max as i did explain is decreased so okay, so you're, you're... there is an effect. There is an effect that everything is is getting down.
0: Now that's weird. For the
1: maximal values, and that's we weird. have we okay. wrote we wrote a paper uh, where we showed that in hypobaric hypoxia, the maximal heart rate is even more decreased than in normal baric hypoxia. You know, uh, hang on. Few, so how few, it... few bit per minute?
0: As I as I was trying to say, and I was obviously wrong. I assumed you get to the same maximum heart rate. And, and maximum cardiac output, but you don't. Now, do you know why that is?
1: Uh, yeah, because probably there is some uh, um, oh, limitation uh, to protect the the heart, to protect the different uh, function. Okay. Uh, but uh, an interesting point is that at some maximal value, your heart rate is increased. Yes. So if I just if I'm pedaling at 150 watts, yes. my heart rate will be higher. But if I'm going to my peak power output, my heart rate is likely lower. Oh, and okay. coming back to the oxygen uh, consumption, at the same power output, you will have about the same VO2. So the efficiency is not that much modifier. Maybe a little bit in some condition, but efficiency is not that much modifier. And it's okay. a common mistake to believe that efficiency is changed.
0: That makes sense to me, because if you're doing the same work, you need the same oxygen to do the same exactly. contraction. So you're doing the same contractions. you need the same oxygen. But that's going to be need to be at a higher heart rate, a higher ventilation. Yes. Okay. So that's and when then, they've gone there. And then
1: their, clearly, clearly it, it's, uh, it will be at a higher relative intensity because yes. my max values are decreased, you know.
0: Beautiful. Okay. So that's something I really wanted to talk about. So it's good that we introduced that now because some of my questions I want to ask you, like the relative. So, so just so people know, if you're exercising on a bike at 100 watts, That might be 50% of your VO2 max normoxia when you're breathing normal oxygen. Well, believe it or not, I actually did a study with this. We looked at activation of AMP kinase. We did three different trials, 50% VO2 max, which is like 100 watts, for example. And then we did the same um, exact workload. So same absolute workload. but As you said, it's a higher relative workload. So we we did the same workload with hypoxia and that ended up like about 70% of the hypoxic VO2 max And then we, as a third, we had them do 70% at normoxia. So you could have the same absolute and relative. I know that's a classic thing. And then we looked at activation of APK and glucose uptake. So that's important because I'm going to want to ask you about that. So when people are doing training, so for example, I might even ask you now. So if if people are training at the same relative intensity, right? So, okay. my, My question is, I sort of got, I was told some, some some people at AIS years ago that part of why they people go to altitude is actually a placebo. You may have seen that in the notes I sent you, mm-hmm. and I, I'd like to ask you about that. So I'm wondering how much of the effects you get when you um, live, uh, live high and train low, yeah, are actually the altitude, and how much of it is because um, when you train, it's harder. Do you know what I mean? so yeah, if you yeah, did the sure. same training no. at sea yeah. level versus at altitude that yeah
1: so it's a key question because obviously there's no point to use altitude or hypoxic training if it doesn't bring any any additional benefits so we are not investigating if altitude training or hypoxic training is effective we are questioning is it more effective exactly than the same training content in normoxia and it's a it's a key question uh the placebo effect is is a bit a joke because uh-huh. uh obviously when you are uh, in Samoritz or when you are in Colorado spring, you know that you are in Colorado spring but it's mm-hmm. this point is does not dismiss is not is, obviously we can we it's a bit theoretical it does not dismiss the effective physiological adaptation that are induced by altitude so um there are some studies where they try to uh, argue that uh, altitude training was only due to the placebo effect. Uh, I'm not clearly. I'm oh, not my on, dog's, this, my on dog's, this side. My
0: dog's barking. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm not going to imply that.
1: But, but Yeah. I guess, yeah, but, uh, I guess
0: uh, where I first uh, heard about that was um, so, for example, some Australian sort of rugby uh, players and Australian uh, rules players and things. They go to like altitude. And then like months later, they'd be saying, oh, you know, that altitude training was, was great, but they only went for like a week and it's like months later. So, so, and I've heard some coaches saying, that's fine, don't, yeah, let them think that because if they, you know what I mean? So I'm yeah, not trying placebo, to diminish that at all.
1: But, um, as a coach, placebo is one tool that you can use, obviously, you know, as exactly. I know. and and we know that the very good coaches use placebo effect in many, many ways, not just about environmental condition, but on, on a lot of different things. So it's not a... Uh, For me, it's not uh, something that uh, we can't use on the field. As a scientist, it's something we have to take into account. And it's very important that we can obviously uh, discuss if altitude training is only due to placebo effect or if there are effective physiological adaptation. So if we come come back to the, the live high, train high, 24 hours a day, obviously what we know is that about 100 hours of altitude induce 1% increase in your hemoglobin mass, total hemoglobin mass. So total hemoglobin mass, you can measure that with CO-rebriefing. Mm-hmm. It was a method that was developed by Walter Schmidt and uh, you know it's used now uh, worldwide at the AIS. They have the um, Chris Gore and uh, his group. Uh, they have used the uh, HB mass uh, measurement with CO-rebriefing method for long. Uh, so there is a consensus that, if I spend 100 hours at the real at the at the right altitude, it's probably between 2,200 and 2,500. Okay. I would get one percent increase in my HB mass. And okay. if I want a if I want a real effect of this HB mass increase, I need at least two to three two to three percent of increase. That means you need 200 minimum or up. Ideally, 300, 400 hours.
0: So, eight days would be, years. so four days would be 100, 100 hours. Yeah. So, you're saying four, eight, 12 days minimum. Yeah. yeah. It takes to see 13,
1: a, days is, 13 days is a minimum. And ideally, we expect three weeks, four weeks.
0: Oh, sorry, four uh, weeks, it's, it's, four days to see anything at all, like 1%. But you're saying you need 3% or so to see anything.
1: Yeah, sort 3% of is minimum, effect. is, three, is uh, about two weeks. But we, we recommend three weeks and up to four weeks, in terms of only these classical mechanisms, you know, what was expected since the 60s. Since the 60s, we are looking to altitude just for about increase in the red blood cell mass, increase in the Hb mass, and increase in the oxygen transport, improvement in the oxygen transport capacity. But it is at the convective level. It's about the transport. We have also to discuss what's going on at the peripheral level. Mm-hmm. is long uh, altitude exposure is it really inducing an improvement in the oxidative capacity in the muscle Ooh, okay. it was so, thought it was thought like that for long it's not the case okay you need perfect, exercise perfect. You Sorry, need if i could just say
0: um yes so so you're saying you need the exercise to get those peripheral effects so if i could just explain so the body's trying to help with its oxygen delivery so what it does there as you said after say 12 days or so you get or 13 or 14 days in a is you'll get uh, a bit of an increase in your red blood cell count so then you can carry more oxygen to the periphery and then you're saying the other thing you can try and do is the mitochondria which i'm assuming most people would have heard of in the muscle is what you know uses the oxygen so one thing you can try and do is increase your mitochondrial volume to then so so what are you saying there you, you said yeah you but it takes exercise?
1: it takes very long it takes very very long exposure so it's uh, the, the time course of Okay, increased ventilation, change in the plasma volume, change in the hemoglobin mass, and then change in the uh, mitochondrial density or biogenesis or capillarization. This Excellent. would occur, but after months of altitude. Months. Months.
0: Yes. Okay. So you don't okay.
1: expect so much change in the capillarization or mitochondrial biogenesis, you know, with effective increase in the mitochondrial um, density after just a few days or few weeks in altitude. And mm. on top of that, it has been shown that you need exercise. It will boost this peripheral adaptation. You know, That's for, long, for long it was thought that um, just staying in altitude would get a massive improvement in your oxidative capacity. That's not really the case. It's very
0: That makes sense, right? Because if you think, if you're just sitting there at rest, who cares if you have to maybe ventilate a bit higher or whatever you're not actually really challenging the muscle but if you're exercising you know and you're challenging i assume the intensity makes a difference as well that you'll have greater adaptations to the to the mitochondria but it also makes sense it takes time yeah
1: yeah because when you when you exercise and the highest exercise intensity the largest the effect you will accumulate the deoxygenation that we can measure with near infrared spectroscopy. So your muscle will be hypoxic because of the hypoxic condition, but also will be more hypoxic because of the deoxygenation induced by the exercise. So you accumulate two way of um, deoxygenation that would that may induce larger adaptation at the in the muscles.
0: Perfect. Okay. So you've we've been talking mainly about uh, live high, train high. yeah? So that's where you go and live there whether it's you know permanently or weeks and months um so so do you want to just tell us a bit more i know we started at this at the start we touched on it but the other as you said it's mainly been live high train low yes the, the different combinations and i know you also i saw in one of your papers there's also the live low train high which is yes. what you're really interested in yeah
1: so in the 90s uh ben Levine- Professor Ben Levin from Dallas and uh, Dr. Jim Stregnerson from uh, Park City. They came with a new idea that uh, if I have uh, an altitude exposure that is long enough, sleeping high, I would get this benefit in terms of the oxygen transport and convective factors. But if I train lower, not necessarily at the sea level, because the first study was they train lower in um, salt lake city that was about 12 or 1300 mm-hmm. you get a better uh quality of training because i'm lower than i can do interval training at a higher velocity and so on then i would combine the physiological, the physiological uh, benefits of living high but the so driving up and down benefit of of training at a better and at a higher exactly. intensity And they've shown in this paper, that was a paper published in '97 in Journal Applied Physiology by uh, Ben and uh, Jim. They showed that uh, uh, after a few weeks of leave high train low versus leave low train low or a third group leave high train high, they had a larger performance enhancement in the leave high train low group for the same increase, in vo2 max the two groups who stayed in altitude leave high train high and leave high train low they had the same increase in vo2 max but when they measured the performance over uh, five kilometer you know running yeah. uh um, like tests on the track yeah. they had a larger improvement in the leave high train low that means that the translation from physiological adaptation to performance was better in the live high train low group. And it was a very, uh, clever idea and it has changed the way, uh, the people train at the elite level worldwide. Now, everywhere, you know, I was in Japan at the Japanese Institute of Sport Science, uh, two or uh, three weeks ago, you go to the IIS, you go to the INSEP, you go everywhere in the world. You have some sleeping room for sleeping in altitude, but mm. What we believe is that we, you need to combine sleeping in altitude and sometimes training in altitude so that's what we call live high train low and high
0: yes yes so so why don't you just explain expand on that a little bit now um so so yeah. to summarize yeah so the, there, th- uh, yeah, sorry, the
1: third yeah. family you know the third family we talk about live high train high we talk about live high train low and these two methods are mainly for the endurance athletes because the main factors remain the improvement in the convection improvement in the oxygen transport improvement in the hemoglobin you know increase in the hemoglobin if i want now to discuss the third family that we call leave low train high that means i just go in a chamber or i take a cable car if i am in switzerland and i will do my session in altitude but just the exposure to hypoxia is very short because i will be there one hour two hours and that means that if there is any benefit of live low train high it is not due to the hematological adaptation because you need 100 hours for one percent increase Mm -hmm. so that would be improvement in the diffusion or improvement in some Um, molecular adaptation in the muscles that can be in the vessel in the microcirculation or that can be directly in the muscles mitochondria or some um, excitation contraction properties and so on and so on and then the leave low train high is something that is really really of interest Uh, we have different way we can do low intensity interval training repeated sprint and so on and so on um, and it can be combined with the other one, with leave high train high and leave high train low. Um, so, but just to 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 make it simple for the for the people who are listening, the main assumption is that if I do leave low train high few session training high, don't expect any improvement in your VO two max. Or okay. if the improvement in VO two max occur, it won't be coming for improvement in the convection it might be improvement in the diffusion at the peripheral level
0: okay so and this then, is uh this is sorry this is talking about uh living low so just just living like you would normally if you live at sea level yeah and then you're actually training in obviously you go up to you know go up or you usually you just go into a situation where you've got a way of the getting low or, oxygen yeah,
1: chamber a yeah.
0: mask or a chamber so you, as yeah. you said you're just going in there for who knows an hour or two whatever so you're not going to get that effect as you said of an increase in red blood cell mass etc hemoglobin mass so you're getting other effects now this is where i'm interested so you're saying that the i'm interested in all of it but i mean this this thing about um the training so you so just say i'm just here at sea level and then i go and train as hard as i can doing repeated sprints or whatever yeah, yeah. and then so I mean, um, okay, not repeated sprints as in. Um, I can't.
1: Dis- I can't explain the first yeah. study on repeated sprint and hypoxia if you want. So it right. will be. It and will whether. Be, I think-
0: okay, and whether you, I would end up better by yes. going into the hypoxia, even if I train at the absolutely the same, you know, uh, RPE, um, you know, the intensity. Yeah. Okay. Great.
1: So, t- uh, yeah, 10 years ago, uh, we, we started uh, to investigating this one of the leave low train high methods that we call repeated sprint and hypoxia. The first study on RSH was published by one of, m- of my PhD students, Raphael Face, in uh, 2013. So, it's exactly 10 years ago. Here, we had one group who would train eight sessions of 40 minutes. So, the total exposure is very short, mm-hmm. doing three sets of five sprints. You know, very short session. Three sets of 10-second sprint. Yeah. One okay. group in hypoxia, 3,000-meter simulated altitude in normobaric hypoxia, one group in normoxia. Before and after, we test a lot of different things. We did observe no improvement in VO2max, no improvement on the wind gate on glycolytic, uh, let's say, capacity. But we did observe a really strong and a large uh, improvement in repeated sprint ability. That means the possibility to repeat high max intensity exercise uh, delayed fatigue in the muscles. So you can do more sprint at a higher power output following RSH compared to following repeated sprint in normoxia. And that was something of interest because uh, then we had to argue, is it coming for a better muscle perfusion? Let's say more blood coming to the muscle. Is it something coming, uh, for example, uh, from a faster phosphocreatine synthesis post the sprint, and it has uh, had now some consequences on on patients. Wow! Now we we ran some study with mice where we had mice doing repeated sprint in hypoxia, and we collected the vessels and we really showed that you have a larger possibility of the arteries for viso dilate and something very important to understand coming to the peripheral adaptation is this uh, compensatory vasodilation if i have less oxygen in my capillary i will have uh, increased perfusion to compensate the decrease in the diffusion you know we we were talking about the the alteration in the pulmonary diffusion a few minutes ago Mm -hmm. now i'm talking about the alteration at the peripheral level so you have less oxygen in the capillary i will have an increased perfusion to try to compensate this alteration in diffusion and obviously you understand that and then we uh, on mice we showed that uh, this vasodilation is effective post high intensity in exercise this vasodilation is effective and there is obviously some consequences on people with vascular dysfunction. Okay. And now we have some clinical study with people with peripheral artery disease, you know, we mm-hmm. have alteration in the endothelial function to, to see if we can use altitude for this type of patients.
0: Oh, that's very interesting. Just a couple of things there. So just to clarify, uh, with the, the humans where they exercised uh, with the repeated sprints in normoxia, so normal oxygen, and hypoxia, so low oxygen, you said yes. they, they, they improved their ability to re- do repeated sprints. Was that at normoxia, so normal oxygen?
1: Yeah, the repeat the test in uh, the test of repeated sprint was in normoxia. Okay. You no, know, most of our study we we are not so interested about using altitude or hypoxic training for improving performance in altitude. It's exactly. obvious, you know, because exactly. you are better acclimatized. You will be better at altitude. Yes. But we are, you, we are, ex, we are investigating using hypoxic altitude training or exercise for improving sea level right. uh, performance. A- and, so, and
0: that, and that was they, they did the same relative intensity. Yes, so it was just as high. Yeah, it was sprint.
1: It was it was maximal flat intensity. Out. Ten, okay. 10 second sprint.
0: Fantastic. All right. And, and then, then this,
1: you know, this study, Uh, has uh, led to a lot of different studies. So It was 10 years ago. Now you have more than 60 studies on RSH in the literature. Uh, Let's say uh, maybe 25 from my group, but also people in Japan, in New Zealand, in Australia, have been working on that. And most of them, they have confirmed that during high-intensity exercise in hypoxia does not induce the same molecular adaptation, the same performance enhancement, um response than repeated sprint or high intensity exercise in, in normoxia. So that's very and it has led mm-hmm. to a very uh, a lot of application i have had one phd student with a welsh rugby
0: okay
1: where the welsh rugby you know very strong team uh, in in 13 14 he uh, was head of performance we had repeated sprint in hypoxia with professional rugby player we had prof- we had repeated sprint in hypoxia with Okay player we had a, mm-hmm. a lot of different sports and uh, now if I summarize repeated sprint and hypoxia is used by a lot of different sports intermittent sport racket sports combat sports team sports
0: yeah so that's interesting because yeah as you said at the start people were tending to think about endurance exercise but now this is for intermittent type exercise so just to bring back to that mouse study you said you, you did so you found with them, they had greater vasodilations. So that means that yes. the blood vessels are opening. So that's another way of trying to get more oxygen in there. Yeah? So you, you're yes. actually dilating. Now that was during exercise. So that was greater blood flow during exercise.
1: Now we, with the mice, uh, we didn't measure the, the blood flow. We we just collected, you know, they did four weeks of exercise. So after that, we collected the arteries. Oh, the isolator. Uh, yes. 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 And then, you know, you have different technique where you can dilators. put uh, different uh, vaso, uh, constriction or vasodilation yes, uh, okay. substance. You, you put uh, like uh, Dino or you put... I understand. Uh, you so know, you're saying it's acetyl- actually... Acetylcholine and then yes. you check what can be the response. You, maybe you're familiar with these different... Yeah,
0: things. yeah. So stuff you, you can do, you can, you, can, you can give this acetylcholine, as you said, you can see if that's like a, a nitric oxide, yes. which is causing exactly. the dilation. Yeah. And you can also give other agents to see if it's the muscle is it the muscle or is it the endothelium and you're saying it's the endothelium which yes. becomes you say you get improvement in your endothelial function
1: so you have and you that, have an improvement Yeah. That and is i critical. want to add something mm. because you mentioned your interest about nitric oxide we we thought that it would be mainly uh, by the the nitric oxide pathway and that was not that clear probably there are some other vasodilatory substances or or factors uh, that is not clear exactly is it if the nitric oxide synthase pathway is the main trigger or not at okay. that stage
0: all right well, that's interesting so yeah so so what you're saying there is you're, you're starting to talk about health implications which is where we're gonna we're gonna head because you're saying that by exercising the, in their hypoxic conditions that the repeated sprints they actually got an improvement in their kind of resting i know it was an isolated vessel but the idea is that they've got a resting better function of their blood vessels and we know that that's important for for blood pressure uh you know for even like insulin's ability to to yep. cause blood flow in the muscle etc sure. so this is really important so yeah i guess with these um these health uh bits and pieces we're, we're going to talk about this a bit more later but did you want to talk about now, seeing as we're sort of going beyond the sort of, you know, what people tend to think about, it's just, you know, the red red blood cells and whatever. Okay. What what did you wanna say about some of the work you've been doing looking at low oxygen and even high oxygen, which is like the opposite and, and look at sort of health, health effects of that, you know, pros and cons of these treatments?
1: Yes, yeah, so if we talk about the potential uh, benefits of using hypoxia for um, health purpose or therapeutic purpose, now we are working on the uh, what we call hypoxic conditioning or hypoxia hypoxia conditioning. So people here that can be with moderate exercise or it can be at rest, they just uh, alternate few minutes in hypoxia, but it's a very severe hypoxia, like 11% or 10% of oxygen mm-hmm. and three minutes, few minutes in hypoxia that can be 30%. I just uh, remind the, 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 the people who listen that the uh, oxygen level is 21%, 20.93. So it can be few minutes at 11%, few minutes at 30%. Mm-hmm. And it has already in the literature some benefits uh, regarding cerebral function. Okay. It is slowing down some neurodegenerative symptoms like in Parkinson, it has some benefits about the vascular function. It's probably uh, mediated by some of the mechanisms we, we just discussed before, you know, and it has some benefits regarding the body composition. Uh, because one of the question is, is also altitude. We know altitude induces an increase. If I stay in altitude, let's say passive exposure to altitude, I will have an increase in my leptin. And mm-hmm. leptin modulate the appetite, you know? Yes. So I will have a decreased appetite. So it, it might be also used for uh, people overweight or, or it's something that is very clearly shown when you go to extreme altitude, like for example, mountaineers when they go to the mountain rest, one of the risks is that they don't eat enough because mm-hmm. they have this large decrease in appetite. For people overweight, you can use... A bit of the similar mechanisms uh, uh, with the leptin uh, increase uh, that is well documented and the decreased appetite level and obviously the the idea is to lead to a decreased body fat
0: okay and, and is that is that with you were saying hypoxia but you're also saying yeah. alternating is that right yes Hi- alternating between so you're saying even alternating between hypoxia so you're saying like uh, you know, eleven percent oxygen when it's normally twenty-one, and then you alternate to hyperoxia, which is like thirty percent. How uh, how many times do you do that, and how how you know how many so sessions, they, how many up and downs or whatever do you get? Yeah. And then you get left. So you
1: have you have a, you have different uh, protocol. We just start a we just start a protocol with hypertensive subject. So at rest they will have three minutes, thirty percent, three minutes, eleven percent. The study is not is not done yet, but uh, what we do expect with them is to have them with a lower uh, systolic pressure. We want them to have to to have this uh, normalization in the uh, in the in the blood pressure that would be mediated by some of the mechanisms, you know, vasodilation and so on. Uh, Yeah, it is really it is very (laughs) promising because it's something easy to do, Uh, and uh, It's something that can uh, be uh, an alternative to the medication or it can lead to a decrease in medication, you know.
0: Yeah, so if they're hypertensive, which means high blood pressure and they're on medications, for example, you're saying this treatment might mean they could uh, reduce their medications, which is
1: is great. And the main main, uh, patient that could benefit from this uh, different hypoxic, hypoxic conditioning uh, methods are elderly hypertensive subject, PAD subject, and people with neurodegenerative disease. So that are the main focus of our, uh-huh. of our work now.
0: So the PAD is peripheral you know, arterial and, disease. And it,
1: yes, peripheral artery disease. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, it's it's a direct, some of them at least, it's a direct consequence of the work we we started with uh, repeated sprint in hypoxia. Oh. You don't expect hypertensive subject or people with PAD to do sprint. doesn't make sense, you know it would yes. be even dangerous, but we just want to uh, see if there is some alternative to the only method used so far, that is medication and low-intensity exercise.
0: So that's really interesting, you're saying that that the hypoxia can cause increased endothelial function, which is the, helping to increase blood flow, which is important for dropping blood pressure if you've got hypertension, but you're actually saying the high oxygen, the, the hyperoxia, can also have a similar effect, is that right?
1: Uh, not alone with when alternating, yes, the alternating uh, hypoxia hyperoxia. It is just that you will play with a large uh, shift in the oxygen supply. Okay. You know, we have to remember that as mammals, oh, the oxygen uh, delivery regulation is a key factor. Uh, you know, uh, the professor uh, Semenza Radcliffe and Kaylin, Few years ago, they got the Nobel Prize about the discovery and the investigation of the on the IF1 alpha. Uh-huh. Uh, okay. These transcriptional factors. They mm-hmm. didn't get the Nobel Prize because they were interested about performance enhancement in in endurance athletes. They got the Nobel Prize because IF1 alpha is a key factor in so many diseases. If well, you have the cancer, if mm-hmm. you are anemic, if you have you know a lot of pathology the if hif one the if family one or two is really important and if you look to pubmed you will have thousands of publications on HIF. few of them in my field exercise but a lot of them about cancer
0: yes yes we've actually had previous podcasts where we've talked about hif one alpha and it's interesting because it's hypoxia inducible factor one alpha so you, th- you would think, oh, it's only activated by hypoxia, but it's activated by lots of things. And it's similar when I had, um, uh, ooh, uh, Paige Geiger on talking about heat shock proteins. They are activated by uh, things other than heat shock, but it just shows yeah. how complicated things get. Um, the other thing I thought I might bring you back to something, because you're talking about another sort of health um, way of m- manipulating hypoxia was your, what is it? VHL. Do you want to explain what that is? Oh, yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. Hypo, so it's a, that sounds really hard to me.
1: <laughs> uh, VHL uh, is at the abbreviation for hypoventilation at low lung volume. Yes. So, obviously, just keep in mind that if I want to get any hematological benefits, I need a long exposure. But if I do repeated sprint, the duration of exposure doesn't count. What is important is the quality of the sprint and mm-hmm. a high level, the severity of hypoxia. So we started a few years ago, uh, again, the first publication was from my group by, uh, by Laurent Trinca. We started to simulate repeated sprint, not using hypoxic facilities, but in, we, we induce a deoxygenation and desaturation by manipulating the breathing pattern. We, we can, it's a bit difficult to explain exactly how to do it, but if you change the way you breathe during the sprint, you can induce a desaturation down to 80% of saturation that that correspond briefly to what is being observed at 2,000 meters of altitude, you know?
0: Yes, well, I, I just thought I'm an asthmatic. I'm a chronic asthmatic, and I have inhaled steroids morning and night. I've also had a bit of long-ish COVID. I'm about seven weeks now, and I've still got uh-huh. crap in my lungs. Okay. And for me, for the life of me, I cannot imagine. So it sounds like what you're saying is you... You have low volume. so you breathe out a little bit. You're just breathing at low volumes. You're purposely so breathing. So it's uh, yes? we
1: we change we change the way we breathe. You have some uh, one phase of apnea, some uh, large, then uh, full. Um, it's I can't explain exactly oh, okay. the technique Sorry. like that. It but the like consequence. Th- the consequence is that if I induce hypoxia by VHL. And I do repeated sprint, I might have some benefits close to what I can do with RSH alone, like repeated sprint in hypoxia. It's an alternative. We call yeah, that yeah. the hypoxic I for looked... the poor. Oh,
0: know, for, okay. for
1: the people who have so, who have no yeah, access Yeah, so just
0: to... just to summarize, even though I don't know exactly how you do it, the bottom line I guess is that instead of having, you know, the poor part, so instead of having an altitude tent or something to and then having low oxygen in there, you actually give yourself low oxygen. By, yes. by breathing less
1: breathing exactly and
0: that's the thing that stresses me out because i can't imagine breathing less because often i feel like i'm not getting enough so it's, and then it's, uh... and then actually doing sprints on top of it but you've had people exactly, do that
1: but uh, you're, you're completely right if you just have a long apnea with full lung you don't have enough hypox- hypoxic stimulus if i do apnea with empty lung i can't do the exercise you could you could do the exercise if you know you have an apnea and you have empty lungs so you have to find a way like a compromise that makes possible to do the sprints and to induce the hypoxia and -hmm. then we did measure that it it was first with deoxygen uh desaturation with an oximeter and after that we've been we we did measure in the muscle deoxygenation with the near infrared spectroscopy and we did Calculate if there are any performance uh, benefits, and that was the case. So, we've done some study already in rugby player in uh, swimmers, in cyclists, and it is not optimal, but it is a good alternative.
0: Okay, perfect. All right. you, you, so, you get me? Do you get me? Yeah, I understand. Yeah. It's the poor person's, okay. uh, you yeah. can't say poor man, it's poor person nowadays. So, okay, <laughs> so if we go to Twitter, you, I, we talked about this earlier. We had a couple of people that sent um, some questions. Yes i can't read without glasses um so angela davies who's been a good she's sent a couple of uh, questions a couple of other podcasts as well yes. uh she was saying this will be useful for her course um what did she say there oh that was about mitochondrial biogenesis vascularization hemoconcentration okay so we've touched on that now we've also got uh pierre, pierre Paquet. i'm paquette. sure i'm saying that wrong. Paquette. Paquette. yeah paquette Yes so he said basics what is the impact of changes on al- in altitude on the physiological data of an athlete so we've talked about that what yes. types of training are recommended at altitude to improve the vo2max uh we've ah. so can i
1: you... can i can discuss a bit that uh it's been um it's been shown that if i do interval training in altitude what we call iht interval inter- uh, intermittent hypoxic training uh, and i want to uh, do like um uh, Three minutes, three minutes interval that is shown to be quite, or five minutes, five minutes that is shown to be effective for improving VO2 max at sea level. In altitude, it is it is not so beneficial, because it's this type of oxidative or aerobic exercise or interval training. You will have the a large effect of the hypoxic stimulus. So the oxygen flux the oxygen flux to the to the mitochondria to the muscle will make impossible to keep the same power output it's impossible okay. to do three minute three minute interval at three thousand meter at the same power output that what i can do at sea level mm-hmm. it is not the case for repeated sprint that's why repeated sprint is uh, effective because if i do 10 second sprint i can do 10 second sprint at the same power output at three thousand meter than at sea level that's why you have this uh, bit of differences
0: okay so but what if you were
1: that's why that's why we don't recommend to do interval training for vo2 max improvement purpose in altitude just do it at low altitude or at sea level
0: i see i see that makes sense okay and then there was a question in in uh, the same person again in terms of sports nutrition is the effect of gels and other sports drinks the same as at altitude it's a bit of a tricky
1: Oh, no, it's a it's, it's a very good question because we know from the work of uh, Brooks and so on in the in Pike Peak that uh, you have a shift in the substrate oxidation when you go to altitude for the same intensity mm-hmm. you will have a larger carbohydrate, carbohydrate. and uh, let's say uh, uh, glycolysis you have a shift also to glycolysis so that means the risk to be uh, to have an hypoglycemia is higher in altitude, and you have to increase the CHO uh, intake, the carbohydrate intake. If not, uh, you know, if I'm talking about the crossover point by Brooks and Mercier, the crossover point will be shift uh, in altitude. So you will get this crossover point at the lower intensity than what you would get at sea level.
0: Yes. Yes. So that's the classic. We haven't actually touched on this, but that's the classic thing. When you go to altitude, you're exercising altitude, you have higher uh, adrenaline, for example, and that stimulates glycogen breakdown, stimulates liver glucose output. So you're using more carbohydrate. And as we know, it's just another nice thing to touch on that it's actually more efficient oxygen wise to use carbohydrate. You need to use more oxygen to get the same ATP from fat than you do carbohydrate. So it makes perfect sense that the body would use more Carbohydrate, but I guess it means it's going to run out sooner. So then the question was a good one, as you said, to sure, supplement. And, uh,
1: mm-hmm. If I want to complement a bit, you mentioned the adrenergic responses. I think one of the one of the key issue to manipulate in altitude or to to take into account in altitude is the sympathetic activation. The sympathetic activation that can be at a risk factor. You know, if I have some, uh, if I have, a, if I'm a, a, with hypertension and so on, and I go too high too quickly, it might be dangerous because you have this sympathetic activation that is larger in altitude. That's why when, you, when we use uh-huh. hypoxic conditioning in this fragile population, we are using intermittent pattern. And uh-huh. sometimes we yes. expect them not to sleep in altitude because we know that sleeping in altitude, you will get a heretic breathing pattern it will be more at risk if you are obese or if you are hypertensive and you sleep in altitude it might be you might have sleep apnea Ap- hypopnea and that might increase the adren- adrenergic responses
0: okay so so there we're talking about you know people know about adrenaline and you know, we just touched on it the adrenaline rush you get when when you're out as us, us been hunter gatherers so we're out picking berries and a lion jumps out we get this adrenaline rush, we sprint to the tree, but that yep. actually is going to put up your blood pressure, as you, as you say. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and the fact that you have more sympathetic nervous system, which stimulates the yeah. adrenaline release, actually you know could, can be not good for someone of high blood pressure, you're saying. Yeah. Um,
1: but, yes. but but when, when we do high-intensity exercise in hypoxia, you might induce some sympatholysis, that means some mechanism that would blunt partly this sympathetic activation. If not, you know, it wouldn't make sense to have this uh, uh, vasodilation that we were talking about if you have this strong effect of the sympathetic activation because uh, sympathetic activation increases the vasoconstriction. That would be the opposite. So depending on which type of altitude, the severity of altitude, how long you stay there, which type of exercise, you can have very opposite effect on the vessel, muscle, and cerebral function. That makes a topic quite uh, challenging.
0: <laughs> wow. And the other thing I know is with the, I guess it's all uh, the level of the hypoxia and the level of hyperoxia, because you know in your paper, you had a nice uh, t- uh, figure where you were saying if it's mild hypoxia, you get these effects. And if it's obviously, if it's high, same with hyperoxia, because I know if you have high oxygen, and this is one of the things you know people would know about Um, hyperoxic um, treatment sometimes you know for for injuries and for for various other things you do get these increases in free radicals yeah which can be damaging do you want to just touch on that i know it's not exercise but just touch on the fact that at at either extreme these things can obviously be negatives yeah but then i think yeah
1: yeah. i think the 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 reactive oxygen species can be a, a strong parameter uh, that can be induced by altitude and also by hypoxia. That's something uh, we, you probably you saw in our publication, we've been working uh, on this uh, oxidative uh, stress or this uh, pro antioxidant balance. And uh, it's something that is uh, that has a, a, str- a large clinical application so overall, we can say that altitude will increase the oxidative stress. But again, there is a different time course between the pro and the antioxidant that uh, the defense, so the oxidative defense. Uh, so we have uh, we have several parameters. You know, some of them: MDA, uh, nitrotyrosine, uh, OPP, whatever. You know, uh, glutathione peroxidase. We have a lot of parameters that we can we can investigate. Uh, and uh, again, it's not that simple because depending of which type of exposure, how high you are, is it intermittent or continuous which level of exercise, you might have some um, uh, specific responses. Uh, yeah. It is something we are investigating now with a, a study with a preterm-born subject, you know, that we oh, put sorry, on the moment. Uh, primar- prematurely born, prematurely
0: born, subject. born,
1: yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, first we thought that they would be more at risk going to altitude. And finally, it is not that clear because probably because they have been on hypoxia and hyperoxia at birth, they might have induced mm. some specific responses, but not necessary to have them more at risk in, in altitude. Yeah. It's, a study we, it's a study where we are doing with a, a colleague in uh, Slovenia, Professor uh, Tadej Debevec. Uh, that's okay. a nice study because we bring the people to the Mont Blanc. You know? We really bring the people uh, to a high-altitude uh, refuge and uh, they stay there for three days, and we, we measure different things, including the uh, oxidative stress.
0: Yeah, I mean, what, it's interesting, as you said, because um, I saw in your paper, the mild hypoxia, so low oxygen, and the mild hyperoxia, high oxygen, they both increased antioxidants. So people would know that antioxidants, you know, like vitamin C, vitamin E, it's, it's, yeah. it's funny that they, they both have the same effect. So I guess it's just because it's a, it's a stress, and you respond with an anti-stress response
1: that's adaptation yeah. it's that's yeah. that the, that the, that, the ba- that the basic mechanisms of physiology you yes. adapt yes. if i stimulate one function i make this function stronger you know that's the principle uh behind uh physical exactly. activity so right? even though
0: they're opposite directions they're both stress. Yes. so yes. you respond similarly
1: yes, yes. yes. and,
0: and the other that's thing why,
1: uh, that's why uh playing with hypoxia is is quite interesting because it's a uh, Uh, fundamental mechanisms of life, including for for us, you know. At the different age, you have different level of oxygenation in the brain, in the different uh, tissue. And we might have a a stronger adaptation if at some point in life you get exposure to this stimulus. That's what we call the hormetic principle, you know. Mm -hmm. Hormesis, hormetic principle, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Exactly.
0: <laughs> I mean, literally, I was sitting out on the balcony today and it was like a tiny bit warm, but I, I'd never think about putting the air conditioner on inside. It was fine. Yeah. But then I noticed drip, drip, drip. The person above me was at their air conditioner and it's like it's not even warm. So it's actually good to be a little bit uncomfortable, you know, a bit cold, a bit hot, a bit hypoxic, a bit, you know, it's it means you can the body can actually have something to, to respond to.
1: Yeah, exactly. But uh, if you look to the work of uh, Tipton, Professor Tipton is talking about also same uh, same principle about thermoregulation. It's not always, it's not perfect for our vessel of our, of our cardiovascular system to always be at the same temperature. It exactly. might be good to be, and you know, you have already all this uh, practical application about cold water, and- heat, uh, exercise and so on and so on Hot yeah it's about and, mm. it's another it's another uh, environmental factor but it's about the same mechanism same principle
0: okay this has been great now what i thought i might do just to finish up again is go back to your because i saw one of your papers it was really interesting i think it was just accepted in medicine mm-hmm. and science sport and exercise the one where you did you were looking at the the aerobic sort of versus the anaerobic sort of balance of doing you know five second sprints and then 10 seconds yes. versus mm-hmm. 10 seconds and 20. Do you want to just explain that one? I thought that was pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, sure. So it's uh, something uh, we believe is very important because we, we, we introduce uh, RSH, repeated spring training in hypoxia, but you have different type of repeated spring. You have some type of repeated spring that can be mainly oxidative and some of them that can be mainly glycolytic. So if you say mainly
0: oxidative is mainly aerobic just for people, so using yes, oxygen, yes. yeah?
1: Uh, and then the glycolytic because you have a, lo- a very small recovery So, you know, if I do uh, with a small recovery and I repeat sprint, uh, I will have an increase in my VO2. But if I do, uh, let's say, 20-second sprint, it will be mainly glycolytic. And the principle is that if I expect hypoxia to have any specific influence on my repeated sprint, it makes sense that it would be mainly if my oxidative-glycolytic balance is okay you know it's uh, not too oxidative not too glycolytic and uh that's something we we've been discussing in this paper uh it is something really of interest for coaches you know we have a uh, we we have some uh, contact with elite coaches, and they uh understand that you can induce lots of different adaptation by using high intensity exercise in hypoxia okay fine but Playing with the exercise recovery ratio and the amplitude between exercise intensity and and um, recovery intensity—that's something uh, it makes another uh, piece of complexity in the in the equation. And uh, another thing of interest is that probably in that case we didn't measure, we didn't have biopsy, but probably people who have more slow twitch fibers might benefit or might have a larger uh, influence of hypoxia on this type of session because the, the fibers are more oxidative. So they are more influenced by the uh, change in the oxygen supply. Okay. You, do you get me on that? Yeah,
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, so fibers are more oxidative, so better at using aer- aerobic uh, yes.
1: and means then to get energy. Logically, hypoxia is a stronger influence.
0: Yes. And then they, that's why we mm.
1: we don't believe that uh, having... Uh, at least for improving repeated sprint ability, we don't believe that having uh, 20 to 30 second sprints might be uh, beneficial. It might be useful if you really focus on, the, on improving the uh, lactic uh, tolerance, lactic tolerance. You know, it's, right. again, you know, it's a uh, you. You might have different purpose. You just have. I, I was a coach, you know, as you as you yes. as you mentioned at the start. And you, you have some a session that you focus on, on improving your aerobic power. Some session you focus on improving exactly. your glycolytic capacity. And you can use hypoxia for different purposes, but you don't use the same type of repeated strength or internal training.
0: And it also it depends on what you need, right? So if your VO2 is already pretty good, then you might work on something yeah. else. If yeah. Now, how about, we've talked about a lot of things here. How about we try and summarize things? So, if you're if you had a team sport so an intermittent exercise type sport what sort of sessions so just say you know as a coach someone's a, a team sport person's come to you you know the welsh rugby players or whatever what would you suggest to them um to do and so
1: uh, we can take the, we can take the example of the res- of the welsh rugby they did uh, in cardiff some blocks of repeated sprint in the hypoxic chamber and after, for the World Cup in 2015, and they came ag- again in 2019, and they will come again for the next World Cup in 2023 in, Par- in France, mm, France, they do some leave high, train low and high. Because a rugby player, a football player, or whatever, they need to have a good aerobic mm. capacity. Not, No, they don't need to have 80 of the max, but no. they need to get because especially on the long tournament, you know, it helps the recovery, it helps the fitness, it helps the immune defense and so on. But on the same time, their specific quality is about repeated high intensity, repeated tackle, repeated uh, fighting, you know. and um, <laughs> It's not fighting, something...
0: it's moles and rucks we, 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 We're not going to call it fighting, I'm just joking. Yeah yeah, and no, just yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. But that means, uh, you know, if you observe, for example, in professional rugby, the duration of of one action, it has improved, it has increased a lot in the last 20 years. It's not, the rugby player now are not the same, even the top five, they are not the same than 20 years ago. They have to be there early, they have to, they, they can't be late, you know, when you have the mole and uh, and they have to repeat that and there is strong effect of fatigue so if you combine having long exposure living high high quality training training low and doing some resistance repeated training sprints. or repeated mm-hmm. spring you might have a very good At
0: altitude. that's right with low oxygen yeah so just to clarify so you live so when you say live high train low and high so you're living high then you get those uh, benefits that are more the traditional type ones people think of maybe the increase in red blood cell mass whatever hemoglobin mass they train low because they've got lots of oxygen normal oxygen they can train hard but then you also top up with the stuff you've been talking about during the repeated sprints or the resistance training with low oxygen
1: exactly correct. It's, so and high then low, low that, high yeah, every sport has to find the perfect combination You know, I'm not I'm not somebody who can tell a professional rugby coach, you have to do this exercise. I can introduce some principle. And after that, every sport has its own needs in terms of repeated, repeated high intensity actions and uh, level of uh, oxidative, glycolytic, repeated sprintability qualities. So it's quite interesting. That's why we've been some uh, we've been working in the last 10 years. You know, I mentioned that. uh, RSH was developed in our lab uh, uh, like 10 years ago. Uh, We've been working with a lot of different sports. Uh, And uh, it's interesting to have this exchange with coaches because they also bring some new ideas.
0: Yeah. And even as you say, it's complicated because even within, I mean, a lot of people don't know rugby that well. But even within the rugby, you've got the fullback that's going to be more standing around than sprinting. You've got yeah. the the breakaway or the yeah. the, fl- the flanker who's is running the whole time so even within sure. the team obviously there's it's different
1: yeah yeah okay that's why you can use a different type of uh, high intensity exercise in hypoxia depending of the position of the guys yes that's, right uh,
0: so that was a team sport so what about if we go back to sort of where it all started so if you're an endurance type athlete that yeah. came to you and wanted to know you know what, what do you think I should do? Again, it depends on their level. Yes, and
1: I think they, they need a repeated prolonged exposure to altitude. That means uh, some, lots of professional cyclists now, they have a hypoxic chamber at home. They sleep yes. on a regular basis at, at, uh, 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 in altitude. You know, a few years ago, uh, we had the elevens When yes. he won the Tour de France in 2011, he did leave high train low in Switzerland. And we did advise, uh, we did advise him about using altitude, but it's a classical method of, of altitude. You know, cyclists, uh, they want to have a high aerobic power. They can combine also, we've been working with some professional cyclists, they combine Levi high train low and repeated sprint, just sprinting at the top of the call. You know, it's just another way to use it. Mm-hmm. Because at the top of the mountain, yeah. At the top of the of the pass. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh Yeah, again, uh, when we started repeated sprint, we thought it would be only and mainly for team sports. But now we know that a lot of endurance sports, cross-country skiers, professional cyclists, they use also some, at some part in the season, some repeated sprint integrated to the traditional methods.
0: Oh, actually, I'm just thinking about something else. Who's that famous guy? I've just forgotten his name. Killian...
1: Killian Jornet?
0: Yes. Now, I heard him interviewed the other day and he, even though he was brought up at altitude, he now lives at like four meters or something, you know, like at sea level. Yeah. And he finds he doesn't really need, he, he feels yeah, like he doesn't really need to do altitude training to be, yeah, to, yeah. to race at altitude anymore. What do you think?
1: Yeah, Kilian uh, uh, grew up in the mountain, in uh, in the Pyrenees. He, he was using a lot of altitude training, but now he's, he's, he's in um, Norway at sea level. No, Norway.
0: Oh, okay. Sorry. Oh, his wife's Swedish, but he lives in Norway, sorry.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he he lives in Norway, so he lives uh, at sea level, and uh, he doesn't need so much altitude. When he did prepare, we published with him, uh, when he did prepare for the record at Mount Everest, he used altitude for that. He did some bit of leave high, train low and high. He was sleeping in an hypoxic tent. He -hmm. was in Norway, sleeping in the hypoxic tent, and he was using the mask system for doing some interval training on the treadmill. So it was leave high, train low, and high. Oh, and okay. that's why uh, I was interested to analyze his training content and discuss with him. Another thing that was of interest for us was that he he felt that it was uh, the, the transition from normobaric hypoxic training because he, the tent and the mask was normobaric hypoxia before to go to the Mount Everest he felt that he needed a transition using hypobaric hypoxia. So okay. he spent a week in the Alps to be in the real altitude Perfect. condition Perfect. so that's two points that were uh, that were of, of interest for us because that's two points we were advocating leave high train low and high as i did explain and also the fact that you might acclimatize in normal barric hypoxia mm. and not be so effective in hypobaric hypoxia that's why we had this publication together and mm. i still uh, I'm very grateful to Kilian that he was openly sharing his uh, his training log and everything with, with me.
0: Now, I'm not an expert on altitude uh, training. I think we've made that clear during this discussion. <laughs> so, I wonder. I was just wondering, and I, I've, I've started adding to this to the podcast of, of whether some of this stuff is controversial. So, is is everything we've talked about pretty much uh, you know agreed on? I'm, I'm sure in science, there's always some controversy. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um,
0: I wonder if you can discuss that a yeah. little
1: bit. So we we had we had different uh, contrasting perspectives, or you know, we had one against uh, against you know a opponent was Professor Richale about hypobaric normobaric hypoxia, and we had a very interesting one with uh, 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 Professor Dempsey. demse uh, Dempsey uh, is a big name, and I have a lot of respect for. Uh, uh, Jerry Dempsey, uh, mm-hmm. he, was advoc- he was stating that altitude would uh, lead to many um, opposite or side effects. In our view, he's right, except that, let's say, he was mentioning uh, sympathetic activation or he was mentioning uh, uh, alteration in the sleep. That's yeah. true, very true, but except that we don't recommend the athletes to sleep at 5,000 meters, 6,000 meters. In our view, the altitude that we do recommend, 2,500 meters, after a small phase of acclimatization, these side effects are not apparent anymore. And mm-hmm. the benefit about hemoglobin mass, the benefit about oxygen transport, and now the benefits about high intensity exercise and peripheral adaptation are very clear you know yes. they, nobody would nobody would discuss that spending time in altitude improve your oxygen capacity. nobody would would will uh, discuss we had now sixty papers on RSH worldwide no very few papers don't bring any additional effects so and the 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 topic is how i combine what's going on at the at the convective level and what's going on at the peripheral level i think it's a lot of combination
0: i think it's very nice because you know you said at the start or maybe it was before we even started you said you know 40 years working in the same area but obviously you've branched out you've got the health impacts you've got you know brand new types of you know high low high that you've developed and uh, happy to say that you've actually mentioned two people that we've had on the podcast already. So Ben Levine was on talking about the heart and exercise. And he uh, yeah, yeah. talked about his hypoxic stuff. And um, Jerry Dempsey was on t- on talking about uh, okay. uh, so, the, the lungs and exercise. So uh,
1: so it's a, it's a privilege to follow this, uh, <sighs> this giant side. And, uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. I know you have a prestigious name in this podcast, and I'm, I was very... Uh, you did convince me to participate because I'm not, I'm not a big fan of podcasts, you know, we have so many things on internet, but I think your podcasts are of, are of the highest quality. Amongst, thank you very much uh the one um, I, I i know so far so thanks for the invitation
0: well i'm very pleased you came on we were joking about it initially but but um i asked if you would come on you said yes and then you said actually no and then you and I, then i sent you the list and you said oh, okay yes <laughs> so and also you came on at very late notice so i had someone pull out so thank you very much for coming on is there anything else is there anything you wanted to talk about that didn't come out anything else you're excited about or have we pretty yeah, much covered everything think-
1: I think the, the most exciting um, avenue for us is about the health benefits yes. of altitude. I don't want to say that there is no risk, obviously altitude is is a additional stimulus, additional stress, but we can manipulate this stress for health purpose. And I did mention in this podcast about some work already that we are already doing with PAD patient, with hypertensive patient, with elderly patient, and most of them, sometimes you have some surprise, but most of them uh, we get very uh, interesting outcome and beneficial outcome.
0: That's great. Okay, well, thanks again for your time and I'll s- see you around. Thank you, Glenn. Thanks. Nice to
1: meet you. And, nice to meet you uh, too. I will okay. listen to your podcast now.
0: <laughs> yes, oh, thank you. Okay, see you.
1: Bye-bye. See you. Bye-bye.
0: I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Um, please like, subscribe, pass it on to your friends and colleagues. Check out the other podcasts. Thanks again.